the end of sin, what I, the whole point I was starting to make is this issue of, of, the, of substitutionary atonement, issues of Trinitarianism, uh, not nearly the issues that they ought to be. And, and when, when evangelicals are debating these things that were left to liberals, we've come a long way. We're, we're in, we are in shaky days. And uh, it, it is tragic to see what's going on out there. And by the way, let me say another thing. And I am not setting us fundamentalists up as perfect or the be-all and end-all. I want to make that very clear. And I am a Baptist, separatist, dispensationalist, fundamentalist, and I am incorrigible in those positions. Uh, I hope I am. I hope I can say and can prove that I am biblically rooted in those positions. No human movement is perfect. But there is a reason why we have not had those kinds of debates in our fundamentalist world. And the reason is we just believe that book is a revelation from God and what it says is so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I fully agree. Yeah. And then we make some issues that aren't issues, and that's another story. And we'll be, yeah. <laughs> We're Baptists, after all. <laughs> okay. Oh, my. Well, what was what was that? Yeah. Yes, yes. Yep. Okay. Well, anyway, let's come let's come up here to where we this discussion didn't become so profitable. But anyway, and I started it. Okay. There is an end to it. The penalty of sin is death. And the word of God is clear about that. One of the major implications of this section for preaching is that we must understand that this is the condition of every lost person to whom we minister. That person will not come to Christ apart from the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. We must preach the word and depend on him to do his necessary work in the lives of the lost. Uh, This statement, I can't tell you for sure where I heard it. But it is, I think, attributed to William Bell Riley. And when I was getting these notes ready for this course this fall, this summer, I went researching looking for it. And you would think a quote that is this pithy and this pointed, somebody would have preserved somewhere in archives somewhere. I can't find it. That doesn't mean it's not out there. just means I haven't found it. But I've looked. But I love it. Wicked is this perfumed preaching, this trite teaching, and this thoughtless theology that does not make sin stink. Simply because sin stinks to God. Right? And that is a 
good thing just to get a hold of. And how I have in these notes, something happened there that I've got two Ds. I don't know how that happened here. Right? But um, what happened to the PDF? I don't know. One of the major implications of this section, I said that, capital E, Dr. Hudson and I were talking one day. It's fun when theologians are, I can, I'll put it this way, I'm going to call myself, I study it and read it. I'm glad I get to rub shoulders with a few of them. But Dr. Hudson and I were talking about sin one day, and I mentioned the fact that from Satan's sin forward, and we've talked about it in this course, there's an irrationality. And then I said with chagrin, and yet we sin. And Dr. Hudson just immediately shot back at me, and we are good at it. Uh, Ralph Warren pastors the Lake County Baptist Temple down in Waukegan, and Carrie Allen pastors the uh, Fox River Baptist Church down near Aurora. I'm going to preach for Carrie this coming Sunday. And these two guys have this statement they've taught me, and it is, altogether too true. We not only believe in total depravity, we practice it. And then uh, the other friend of mine, Captain, uh, the last one there, that's uh, my buddy Myron Houghton out in uh, Ankeny. He says, when one prepares class notes on, homardi on homardiology, it's autobiographical. You write in your own story. Okay. Right? Good. Any questions, comments? I just felt because we're going to deal with these issues and they underlie the work of Christ on the cross. Any comments, questions, anything else that needs to be said on the issue of sin? Nobody's not going further. We're all set. Huh? Okay. Now, let's come to section one of soteriology. Some of this is very simply introductory. But it is important. So let's begin to work through this. The Hebrew word, verb for salvation in the Old Testament is Yeshua. Uh, and you have heard that word. Uh, you know that that is, the, that is the word that gives us the name Joshua. Ultimately, when you get to the New Testament, it is the root for the word Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, in the Hiphil, it means to deliver. The Nifil form is translated passively to be liberated, uh, and it, it is used in several contexts. Uh, it can be used of uh, deliverance from external evils. It can be used of salvation in battle, uh, from peril, from moral troubles. Uh, it can be used in distinction to idols and astrologers who cannot save, cannot save. And the word is used of salvation from sin. So in the Old Testament, the word can be used in, in several 
different contexts. And the Greek word for salvation in the New Testament, I again, I don't know why my my uh, fonts are spotty. Sometimes they come through clear, and sometimes they don't. But the font is the, the word. The Greek word is sozo. It means to cause someone to experience divine salvation, to save. It's used in the sense that God decided to save those that believe, 1 Corinthians 1.21, and you have been saved by grace, Ephesians 2 and verse 5. In the New Testament, it's used in the sense of saving from physical disease, Luke 18.42, temporal danger, Acts 27.20, and to save from sin, Matthew 1.21, to save his people from their sin. The disciples used the term in reference to eternal life. That, of course, is the way in which it is used the vast majority of times in the New Testament. And as with so many terms, the Old Testament word forms the background of the New Testament usage. Now, let's, as we consider it, and just try to get an overview of what... um, what the scripture is is doing and as it's presenting salvation to us uh, the first thing that we need to understand is the divine source of salvation turn with me this morning to titus chapter 3 will you please titus the third chapter And uh, Shailene, tell you what, we'll let you start in verse 4. And let's read down through verse 7. Everybody just read us a verse. Will you please? Titus 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7. Thank you. Okay. Now, uh, this passage of Scripture involves all the members of the Trinity in salvation. God the Father revealed His kindness and love to men in salvation, verse 4. The Holy Spirit of God does the work of regenerating the sinner. And the Son is the agent through whom salvation is provided. And salvation is declared to be the peculiar work of the Son, and He receives the preeminence. And that, of course, is because it is the Son who came to earth, took upon human form, lived the sinless life, went to the cross, accomplished the work of satisfying divine justice, rose victorious from the grave. Uh, let's take a quick look at Colossians. We could almost turn a soteriology class into a Colossians book study. It is a it is a rich uh, it is a rich passage to look at. 
But in verse 12 of Colossians chapter 1, you have, first of all, the uh, again, the, the work of the Father uh, who has provided salvation for us and who has, according to verse 13, placed us in the kingdom of Christ. It is through Christ that we have redemption and forgiveness. And then Paul launches into that great statement on the uh, on the uh, preeminence of Christ, the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, is the image of the invisible God. Verses 15 through 20, I'm not going to take the time to walk through it here, but verses 15 through 20 are a very, very tightly structured set of verses. From a literary standpoint, it's full of parallels. Uh, twice he says, in whom. Twice Christ is called the, uh, is called, uh, the firstborn. Twice uh, Christ is superior. He is the creator of those things that are in heaven and in earth, and he will be the reconciler of those things that are in heaven and on earth. There are, there's just a, there's a series of about four parallels in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and a lot of people, actually, if you get into some commentaries, you will find that numbers of commentaries believe that Paul is quoting a part of a very early Christian hymn, uh, whether it is that or whether uh, whatever it is, it is it is very clear that it is from even a literary standpoint. It is just a tightly constructed uh, passage of scripture. But scripture declares, and folks, please don't miss this. If You've got your notes highlighted. This is, this is really, and we'll come back and make some application about it in a few minutes, but this is really just, just vital for us to get. Scripture declares the ultimate aim of the atonement to be that God might himself be just. And no theory of the atonement will meet the demands of reason or conscience that does not ground its necessity in Christ's or in God's righteousness. And we are told that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are for, that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. You and I are the objects of justification. We are the objects of forgiveness. And it is not wrong, it is very biblical to rejoice in what God has done for us in Christ. But the thing upon which it is all built, the foundation upon which it all rests, is the fact that God is just. And in Christ, he has provided a way to vindicate his own righteousness, to satisfy his own righteousness, and to justify those who put their faith in Christ. So uh, we've, we've, we've got to 
understand that this thing is that this that this work uh, is grounded in God, and then the human object of it. Uh, God provided salvation for mankind, and we don't want to we don't want to deny that nor minimize that. Uh, the body is part of the whole person, and the body will be saved. First Corinthians five twenty three, First uh, Thessalonians uh, five twenty three. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, talks about your whole spirit and soul and body be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. I believe that's is that not the passage? Yes, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans and travails together until now, waiting for the, the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. Our citizenship is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, made like the body of his glory. When he appears, we'll be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So uh, redemption ultimately deals with the whole person, spirit, soul, and body, uh, will be redeemed. And the Christian's body belongs to God now. We are bought with a price. First Corinthians chapter. We'll say more about it later, or will we? But it must be emphasized that salvation is provided for all men. And let's let's just right now not go past Romans 10. But if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. With the heart man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Romans 10, 11, Whosoever believeth in him shall not be ashamed. Then he says in Romans 10, 10, For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The gospel cuts across the boundaries of race and nation. No difference between the Jew and the Greek. Now listen to it. It's going to come twice. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that believe. For Romans 10:13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now. Romans 10.11, Romans 10.13, he says the gospel's for whosoever. In Romans 10.12, he says there is no distinction of race or nation in the provision of salvation. And twice in Romans 10.12, he says it's for all. You can't get much more inclusive than that. And you can try Hebrews 2 and verse 9, and I love that verse. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. There has to be a sense in which the, the, the death of Christ provided salvation for every man and the offer of the gospel 
to all men is a legitimate offer, and it is right to preach the gospel to every creature. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. Yes, sir. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the ultimate purpose for salvation, it's a, it's a very good question. You've forced me to make sure I'm saying things right back here. Obviously, the ultimate purpose for all God does is His own glory. Somewhere before we get out of this discussion, I think maybe today, certainly next time we're together, we are going to talk about the fact that of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. And when we get into Ephesians chapter 1 in this introductory section of soteriology, three times in Ephesians chapter 1, and not because we have a 40-year history at Maranatha and it so happens to be school motto, but because school motto comes out of the eternal word of God. Three times in Ephesians chapter 1, and every one of those times relates to God providing salvation for us. What is the ultimate purpose? To the praise of his glory. And what is God's ultimate purpose for you and me? That we should be to the praise of his glory. In fact, let's take a look at it. Okay, What I... What I want to be sure that we get, Brother Casey, is that the foundation, the foundation of our salvation is the righteousness of God. And that God does not pick up the rug and sweep sin under it. His provision of salvation is not a mere sentimentalism. It is perfectly consistent with his own righteousness and the demands of his righteousness were made, uh, were satisfied. The penalty that he required in his righteousness was exacted. Only thing that was exacted upon our substitution. And that creator became Identified with the creature. Creature sin about to bring creatures to creator. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it and but what God has done is consistent with His righteousness. That is that is the point. But let's just just. Because it's a good exercise. Let's turn to Ephesians and just lift those three things out. Uh, let's start in and, and, and Paul, you know, he just jumps in. This is this is this shallow stuff that's just real easy to get. Predestination and adoption and election and all of that all at once. But look at it in Ephesians 1 4. According as, as he hath chosen us in him. Uh, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did he do all of this? To the praise of his glory, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Now, 
Come with me down to verse 12, verse 11. In whom also we have an inheritance, have uh, been predestinated according to the purpose of him that worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. Now, he's still not done. Verse 13, in whom you also, and by the way, trusted is in italics there, so can I drop it out since it was added by the translators? I think we get the sense of what the Holy Spirit said. In whom you also, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. So God's purpose in providing salvation was for his own glory. Our ultimate perfection, verse 14, will be to the praise of his glory. And God's purpose for us now, verse 12, is that we should be to the praise of his glory. Okay. I don't think that I don't th I don't think there is any question about that. Yes. Well, okay. Yeah. You know, is is it or is it a combination of all of them? I guess officially it's one twelve. Yeah. I'll tell you what. When you sing that Maranatha hymn. There, you get a pretty good explanation. Thomas Cedarholm was a pretty good theologian. And, uh, she was she was an incredibly talented person. Numbers of numbers of numbers of areas, but uh, you would never you know talk with her. She was she was you know she she come to your house for dinner. She and Dr. Cedarholm when. Judy and I were kid preacher and his wife in Rochester, Minnesota. He came by and preached for us on a Sunday. And before they left for the afternoon, because they were going somewhere else to preach that night, she got out in the kitchen and helped Judy with the dishes, had her hands in the dishpan, you know. And Contralto, I heard her sing one of the solo parts in the Messiah, a harpist. She was unique in directing the choir, incredible administrative ability. She was she was something else. He was he was dynamic leader in his own right. So it was it was a pair, match made in heaven. But uh, but she was among other things a pretty good theologian. Okay, and I I can understand that. Uh, there is no doubt that his glory. Uh, and and you think about it. And the way our English works, and I'm not demeaning any translation. I don't know how any translation could collect the force of it. But he'll change our vile body that it may be fashioned like unto the body of his glory. Is Philippians chapter 3. You know, and so many times uh, you get those, uh, you get, where, where we get the glorious adjective that modifies and, and it's, it's all right. Uh, the Greek is much more forceful in emphasizing the glory of God. Is my, is my point. Somebody else, All right? 
Then, complete individual redemption is certain. Romans 8.23, the whole creation groans and travails together until now, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. Okay? Then, the judicial and moral effects of sin. Ben, can you hear now? Okay. Use. Okay. Good. Oh, I, I'll tell you what. When, yeah, when the, uh, when <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time, if you can't tell. Uh, but, uh, but uh, at any rate, where was I? Okay. At least you can hear. I think when we got the conversation going in the room, you had a hard time picking up some of what was going on. Sorry about that. All right. Now, uh, the judicial and moral effects of salvation. It deals with all sin and sins. The Bible teaches that all sin and sins are affected. Uh, let me... This, this is another place, and I think I did it in Isaiah class. Certain places, uh, we were talking about what? Yesterday, were we on substitution? Did we get on substitution? Oh, we got on these words for sin in, in Isaiah yesterday. So somewhere, some of you are running into stuff repeated. But uh, we'll say it again when we get to the extent of the atonement. Uh, we will say it when we get to Isaiah 53. So forgive me for being repetitive. It's just that we're dealing with some of the same doctrinal issues and some of the same scriptural passages. But Isaiah 53.6 in Hebrew is so certainly descriptive, certainly forceful, Almost beautiful in the weight of it. All of us, it begins in Hebrew, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of all of us. And it begins and it closes with all of us. Yes, I'm aware of that. Good. Calendar just told me that we have chapter. So, uh, nine, what is it, 9.20? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to let you go a few minutes early because I've got to speak in chapter and I want to get my head together. Okay. Uh, you can tell the way this is going this morning, I need to get my head together. <laughs> okay. But anyway, all sin and sins are affected. God declares men righteous by virtue of their faith in Christ. Romans 3, and we've already made reference to that passage. And it changes men. This is not just a forensic thing. This is not just a judicial thing, though it is. But it changes man and makes righteous living possible. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, 
that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And when God's justifying work, Romans 3 and 4, is accomplished, the result of it in the here and now is that we can walk, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, and we can live for Christ. So uh, it has a, uh, it, it changes man and makes righteous living possible. Uh, it's accomplishment. It covers all time. It covers the past. It covers the present. And it, is, it involves a, a present process. And it promises a future goal, which is ultimate perfection and sanctification. And by the way, as long as I'm stopped here and as long as I have said that word, sanctification, let's just point that out. Positionally, now, Colossians 3, we are risen with Christ. Christ is our life. Salvation is a present possession. Uh, I remember maybe the first time I ever dealt with that. When I pastored down in the little church in the little town of Oregon, Illinois, uh, there was a group down there, and I think they still have a little Bible college down there. It is what it was, was a splinter off the Millerite sect and the basic part of the Millerites became the Seventh-day Adventists, you know, the Millennialists. They were looking for the return of Christ back in, what, 1904, 1914. They were Harold Camping ahead of Harold Camping. But uh, setting dates for the return of Christ. Um, he's been quiet lately. It's come, oh, yeah, that's right. We got a new date, October. Some guys never, ever learn, do they? <laughs> but anyway, they were they were a very little sect of that Seventh Day Adventist Millerite crowd, and I don't I don't know if they've got fifty churches across the country, but they had a little Bible college down there, and several of our folks in a town of thirty eight hundred people were impacted by them and rubbed shoulders with them every once in a while, and they believed in soul sleep. When our son was killed. It was a tremendous opportunity to give testimony of to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and to give testimony of, of, a, of a genuine faith in, in, a, in a time like that. But at any rate, they also they also had a big big problem. You can't know you're saved till after this It was amazing the power of the simplicity of John 3. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but present possession have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And it is not something that we are going to have. It is something we have now. And uh, first, first Corinthians chapter one is it verse eighteen? I believe that is right. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. Uh, yep. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. And if any of you will ever happen to translate 1 Corinthians 1, and you get to verse 18, you will find that 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 uh, the word sozo there, if I'm not mistaken, somebody can check me right now, help yourself, is a present passive participle. To the ones being saved. Finding it? Going to check me here in a second. But if, I, if, if my memory serves me correct, it's a present passive participle. One's being saved. Am I right? What do you know? I remembered correctly. Okay. But uh, so salvation is not only what was done for us, and it is not only positional, it is a present possession, and we will receive the end of our faith, First Peter 5, 7, the salvation of our soul. And there will be that ultimate accomplishment of our salvation. And this is stuff uh, that you have all known a long time. You have been over in other classes. I'm confident both undergrad and maybe grad. But at any rate, uh, it covers all time. It's benefits. It bestows all spiritual blessing. These blessings are given to us and given to us in Christ. And we receive all blessings for sanctification, all things that pertain to life and godliness, is that statement in 2 Peter 1.3. It's possessions. These are all things, that save, uh, all things that save people need for life are given us in Christ. And though this is simple survey, folks, I want to stop here for a second because this will become important when we get into the details. Number one, our salvation is that which is shared in Christ. Jude says that he started to write concerning the common salvation. And wherever you go, you meet someone who's on his way to heaven or on her way to heaven, whatever country you're in, we share a common salvation. And it takes you about 30 seconds to establish a brother and sister in Christ relationship with believers anywhere in this world. It's just an instantaneous thing because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, they, are, uh, they are of like value to all. Peter's statement in 2 Peter 1.1, to them that have obtained like precious faith. And we all count that faith as a precious possession. And then... These possessions, these blessings in Christ. Here's where I want to stop for a minute. And in a preaching, counseling, teaching situation, this can never be overemphasized. It cannot. Sarah, you have a Bible open there. Would you read Romans 8.32 for us, please? Right? I just want us to get it on the table and on the record uh, just so you understand what I'm talking about. 
He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him, notice the next word, freely give us what all Now, put that in its context. Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20. The sinfulness of the race. Romans 3, 21 through chapter 5. Justification. Romans 6, 7, and eight, sanctification. Our position, buried with Christ by baptism into death, the promise that we can live for Christ and that God will, uh, the spirit of him that dwell, that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Jesus from the dead shall quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. And the battle with sin, and every one of us have have you lived Romans 7? The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. Anybody been there and done that? Uh, I maybe ought to build a booth over there and a decided booth because uh, I don't want to be on the other side of it either. <clears throat> We've all been there. I don't want to be on the contestant side of it. You get my point? He was having a hard time with that. But, um, but we know and share Paul's back. The righteousness of the law may be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit, Romans chapter 2. And we can, through the Spirit, put the death to do to the flesh, Romans chapter 1. Praise God for that truth, right? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Everything I need to get safely to heaven from the time I trusted Christ as my Savior to the day I get to glory is mine in Christ. And it is as the result of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't ever forget that. In your own life or as we minister to others, we can tell folks you can live the Christian life, you have the tools available, you have the you have the ability for victory, and it's not yours. It's given to you in the same cross that purchased your justification. Justification, sanctification, glorification are all part of what the Son of God purchased and provided for us when he died on Christ. Now, my sanctification is an ongoing process. It is a growth in grace. But the idea of a Wesleyan second blessing, the idea of some kind of Keswick second experience that is necessary 
for me to enter into some kind of a higher Christian life is not there. Everything I need to live for Christ was purchased for me at Calvary. That's why I'm stopping on that and, and, and uh, jumping on that for a minute. Okay, then the final issue of our salvation. Salvation is certain. It provides for all possible contingencies. By the way, Nick, you've got a Bible open. Rather than read it a verse at a time, why don't you just start in Romans 8, 33. Sarah, ready? 32. Hey, what let's do. Sarah, you read 33 again, and I'm going to just have Nick pick up at 33, and you just finish the chapter for us. Will you please? All right? Just... Just get a hold of this. 